One of the books that I am currently reading is Susan Ronald's newly published book, Hitler's Aristocrats, The Secret Power Players in Britain and America Who Supported the Nazis, 1923 through 1941. I'm a history nerd, so you'll have to forgive me. But it's been really eye-opening to read about these wealthy and very well-connected British and Americans who were so enthralled by Hitler when he was rising to power that they even supported him during his ascent. These people believed, as Ronald calls it, the big lie, that Hitler was actually a man of peace. She writes, Hitler's mastery was not the big lie, but in getting millions to believe it. And so these elites misunderstood him. The lengths to which he would go, the things that he would do, they believed the lie. Uh, War will never come. Hitler is a man of peace. He would never do that. He could never do that. But of course he did. And clarity came for these people much too late. That must not be said of you and me. You and I need to see clearly now that war is always looming on the horizon for us. Perhaps not in a spiritual way, but certainly in a a physical way, but certainly a spiritual one. We cannot deny the war. We must not underestimate our enemy, his intentions, his capabilities. He is the one of whom Jesus said, he does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We must see the enemy and the war that's always coming against us, and we must be prepared to meet it, and not only to meet it, but to win it in Jesus And in order that you and I might do that, we must know, we must know that we are dearly beloved sojourners and exiles. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return to the first letter of Peter. I'm going to ask you that if you have your Bibles, you would take them now and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear, read together, the word of the living God. First Peter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, this is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we do now ask that you would bless your word to our hearts, to our minds. Spirit of God, we ask that you would... Join your presence with your truth 
and that transformation would take place in our hearts, that we would love you more dearly and be more devoted disciples. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the verses before us this morning mark the beginning of the next major section of this letter from Peter. It's going to extend from here all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. And this particular section contains some particularly difficult teaching, at least for the culture in which God has ordained that you and I should live our lives, teaching that leads to battles within our own heart, as well as with the world, teaching that's going to tempt us to stick our fingers in, my, in our ears and say, I won't listen. It's not right. It's not good. It's hard. I can't obey. Peter is going to call us to submit to the government. What? <laughs> in this day, in this age, submit to the ones over us now? Peter's going to write, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Peter's going to write, wives, be subject to your own husbands. What? An anathema in this hashtag world in which we live. Peter's going to write, husbands, understand your wife and honor her. What? That requires that I listen and engage. Church growth experts would advise, skip this section, or gloss over it, or reinterpret it so that it might fit our culture. Or they would advise, then you might as well shut the doors of your church. There'll be no one left. Well, here's what faith tells me. Faith tells me that it's better to close the doors of this church than to close the door on the truth of God's Word. God's wisdom, in order to accommodate a twisted and perverse culture. So clearly, we can see that a war is looming. Look again in verse 11. Peter writes about the things that wage war against your soul. The things of this world. The ideas of this world, the philosophies of this world, wage war against your soul and mine. Denying the war won't make it go away. Underestimating our enemy will not make us safe. It will just make you and me guilty of believing the big lie of the great liar. Opting for a positive, uplifting message won't render the dire truth we read here untrue. Far better for you and for me to know how it is that we ought to engage in this world war and how we ought to win it. And that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time together. We're going to look at two realizations, two realizations that will enable us to engage in this world war and win it through Christ. Look again in verse 11. Beloved, stop. We cannot skip over this word. This word is not a filler word. It's not a throwaway word. 
It's not like a nervous, um, um, beloved, uh, 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 um, beloved, while Paul, Peter's collecting his thoughts about what he's going to say next. No. The word communicates that people who belong to God are loved by God, valued by God, prized by God. That's the first realization for engaging and winning this world is that you and I battle on as those greatly loved by the Father. Peter's friend, John, what great friends they were, writes in his first letter, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's for you. It's for me to remind ourselves of that every day. If you are like me, oftentimes, or maybe just sometimes, you don't feel very lovable. We feel as if the enemy should go ahead and have us. That we should just surrender to him. The ugly thoughts we have or attitudes or words we speak, the things that we do that we know are unbecoming to those who are adopted children of the living God. So we have to remind ourselves, listen, we have to remind ourselves that God's love for us is not now and never has it ever been based upon the fact that we are so good and so lovable. His love for us is based on the indescribable love that He has as Father for His own dear Son, not adopted as you and I are, but truly begotten of the Father. And begotten doesn't mean that Jesus was created. No. He is the eternally existent Son along with the Father and the Spirit. Begotten simply means this firstly. Being the one and only of its kind within a specific relationship. And secondly, to being the only one of its kind in a class. God's love for you isn't because of you, it's because of Christ. It's because Jesus stands in this unique relationship with His Father. There's not another relationship like it. You and I are adopted into it, made part of it, but we will never relate like the only Son. He is unique in His kind, His class. There's only one like He is. No one could do what the only begotten Son did. And what He did was there. What He did was the cross. And He chose to do what He did because of His love for the Father. It's beyond our ability to understand or even find an analogy to equate to the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. The Son, Jesus, who so willingly took this greatest of all mission trips to our world so that we might enter into this great love. You see, it's because of Christ. It's because of the love the Son has for the Father. And the love the Father has for the Son that doesn't change, though we always change. We fluctuate in our behavior, 
fluctuate in our obedience, fluctuate in our devotion. We must never skip over. We must never rush over this word, beloved, to get on to the good stuff, the next stuff, the meaty stuff, the interesting stuff, saying, yeah, 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 I know all about that. I know all about the love of God. Let's move on. No. It's because you and I forget the love that God has for us, that we do the things that we do, that we make the choices that we make, choices that damage our souls. Who cares? We may say, the one by whom you are beloved, he cares. He would have it that his love for you and for me would be so deeply dwelt upon by us that we would need nothing else, that we would need no one else to completely satisfy us. Do you know the love the Father has for you? Do you feel the love the Father has for you through the Son? If not, listen, you have to dwell then upon the only begotten of the Father. Looking at Him, looking at Jesus, it's like looking at a flash of light and then closing your eyes. And when you close your eyes, you see the image still there before you, though in negative form. I don't believe the flash In the beginning, when God said, let there be light, and there was light, I don't think that that flash of light was any greater than the flash of light and the love that God has for Christ and Christ has for the Father. We must keep it before us always. That 17th century Puritan preacher, Thomas Watson, writes, meditation imprints and fastens a truth in the mind. A Christian without meditation is like a soldier without weapons or a workman without tools. Meditation is like watering of the seed. It makes the fruit of grace to flourish. If you don't meditate on the love of Christ for you, if you don't think about it often, if you don't think about the reasons you have that love, then everything you face every day, you face with no defense. You are the soldier in the heat of the battle, and you have no weapon. You are the worker tasked with building a great cathedral, and you have no tools with which to build. You are the unwatered plant. You do dry up and wither. And shrivel if you do not contemplate the love of Christ. Why it's yours, how it became yours, and how it is that you ought to live in light of one so greatly loved by God. Your enemy would throw your sin in your face as a reason for you to doubt God's love for you to keep you away from your loving Father, and then He wins the battle. You feel defeated, and justifiably so. Don't believe the big lie of the great liar. You are dearly beloved by the Father. People of God, do you believe that? He loves your soul through Jesus. As you battle on, remember that He is with you, 
that he is for you. And then realize this as well. That Peter's writing here not only about the love that the Father has for them, but also the love that Peter has for them. You see, love begets love. Love is the offspring of love. Peter loves others because Christ first loved him. And since this word beloved is inspired by the Spirit of God, it's not a false word. It's not just a flattering word. It's not a sycophantic word. As the Spirit moved the personality of Paul, Peter, while he was writing this letter, a real feeling of love came over Peter for all those believers to whom he's writing this letter. Is that to the credit of Peter that he loves so much? No, it's to the credit of and for the glory of Christ who loved Peter so that he could love others. 30 years earlier, Jesus took a walk with Peter after his resurrection. And he said, Peter, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. And then Jesus, out of his own love, gave Peter the love that he would need to do the thing that Christ had called him to do. Beloved, we must love one another through Christ. We need each other in this world. We need each other in the battle. We need a band of brothers. We need a band of sisters that we love and trust and cherish in Christ. If we'll engage in the battle and win it, we must call each other beloved and mean it. I'm going to go Baptist on you now. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? Please turn to the person beside you and say, hello, beloved. One more time. Hello, beloved. Do you mean it? Do you mean it? Do you mean it? All right. Let's move on. That's the first realization. For meeting the battle and winning it, knowing that we are loved by the Father and the Son and loving others in return. Now look again in verse 11 for the second realization. Beloved, writes Peter, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Stop. Peter reminds these loved ones that they are loved while they are sojourners and exiles in this world. Now you might say, Craig, please, don't repeat yourself. We already talked about this. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, get on with it. But how can I get on with it? If God repeats himself, it seems like maybe we should listen again. God's repetition makes me conclude that this is something upon which we must meditate. Perhaps God knows it's a truth and an identity as exiles and sojourners that you and I easily forget. We forget that exiles are those who stay only temporarily in a place. And that while they're in that place, they find it strange and foreign. This time in this verse, Peter adds a second word, sojourner, which is really just a synonym for exile. And so both words together emphasize the temporary, non-permanent, foreign status of you and me as believers in this world. I don't know why the Spirit of God inspires Peter to double up on this word in this verse. 
when he's already written it before, unless it's because God knows how comfortable you and I can become in this world, or how comfortable you and I can attempt to become in this world. How easy it is for us to forget we are almost home. God knows how we're made. What's in front of us, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell. We believe those things to be more real than what we don't see. And yet what we don't see is more real than what we do see. I could trail off right now on the Lord's Supper. And the beautiful hymn from the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian preacher Horatius Bonar, who writes, Here, here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. Here would I touch and handle things unseen. Here, grab with firmer grasp eternal grace. This, this is what is real. Face to face with the Lord through the elements of the table. Here on the table, touching grace. Have you ever thought of that? Grace is so intangible, but here on the table, we touch it. It's through these symbols that represent the body and the blood and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. I'll just say again that perhaps the double strike of sojourner and exile is to remind us that this world is not our home. Our values must be different when heaven is our home. Our goals must be different when heaven is our home. Our motivations for every day of our lives must be different when heaven is our home. And our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our souls must be ready for battle when heaven is our home. And so I remind you right now, believer in Christ, heaven is your home. Do you believe that? Heaven isn't something for your grandparents. It isn't something for old people to think about. If you're here this morning and you are 11 years old and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, heaven is your home. And you never know when it will be your home. It's not your goal to, to, to just grow up and then be part of the real world. Heaven is your home. The same is true if you're 23 or 37 or 45 or 58 or... 60, which I'll be when next I see you, or 82, heaven is your home. It is there we must fix our sights. Don't be deceived. Don't believe the big lie of the great liar who wants you to doubt that you are really going to make it to heaven in order that then you would just live like you're going to hell anyway. No. Heaven is your home. The battle is real. The only way to win the battle is to live in the love that our Father has for us because of His beautiful Son and our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way to win is to love and cherish one another. To call each other beloved and mean it when we say it. The only way to win is to remember that whatever it is we face on this earth, the pain, the ridicule, the battle scars as we stand unflinchingly for God's truth, heaven is our home. Oh, beloved, exile 
and sojourner. Heaven is beautiful, and it will be worth it. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to see the war, but not fear the war, but to face it unflinchingly through the great love that you have for us, for the love that you have given us for one another, our comrades in arms. Father, we pray, we pray that you would help us engage well in this battle to remember who we are in this world, exiles and sojourners, and live accordingly. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.